0: Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi, And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying.
1: If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. Today we're talking with Florian Motlick about how testing and validation Using the continuous integration and deployment model results in manageable quality software. How are you doing, Flo? Uh, very well, thank you. How are you? Great, thanks. So I'd like to start off with a definition. Can you tell us what is continuous integration? Sure, of course. So the whole
2: point behind continuous integration specifically, but whole like continuous integration, continuous deployment, is... Continuous integration is about getting feedback about your code and your code changes quickly. So you want to have an automated system that whenever you do any kind of change in your code base and push it into your repository and share it with your team, you want to get feedback as quickly and early as possible if something went wrong. So because, I mean, it's all about how fast can we implement new stuff, how fast can we move along. And I mean, as we all know and and learn that the earlier we find any problems, uh, the cheaper it is to resolve. So if a developer does a change on a feature branch, pushes it to the repo, and a few minutes later, they know if anything in their whole application is broken, or if anything just broke right now, or if they should fix something, it's very cheap and easy for them to resolve and just push with the next time, like a couple minutes later, they fix something, or even to see like if something that they haven't even thought about might have been broken, so the whole point of continuous integration is for every change you do in your repository, in your code base, you run on a separate automated system, all of your test, integration tests, or uh, whatever is necessary to validate that nothing in your application broke with that new change. And of course, the notification of that, so that your developers, that your team knows that if something broke, they have all the important uh, information to, to
0: fix that quickly. Could you provide a, an example so people can wrap their head around how sure. this all works?
2: Sure. For example, let's take an online shop. And we've seen those, those, those problems before. You have an online shop and you have tests for the, the login system, for example, like how people can log in. And a developer changes parts of the database. So the way that the passwords are stored is now different than before. If you push that to your system, you have automated tests in place that as soon as the developer pushes that new feature into the system, all the tests are run, it is automatically validated if people can still log in and the test says, wait, like I can't log in here, but I should be able to. I think you broke something without realizing that you broke it. You might wanna take a look at this, dear developer who pushed that change. Then the developer like gets an email, gets a notification, can look into that and fix it immediately. Or another thing would be, again, in an an online shop, like you have a buy button somewhere. At some point, there is a buy button to start the whole buy and and payment workflow. Um, You want to make sure that button is there. Now, if you change some CSS or some other JavaScript, maybe somewhere in in another part of the application, for some reason, that buy button might not be there. And the developer could have worked on something completely unrelated. And now the buy button is gone. If you find that out, once the application is in production or very late in the development cycle, it's really hard to understand, like, which change broke the buy button, which change made sure that we can't buy stuff anymore or our customers can buy stuff anymore. And that's really expensive to detect it very late because then you have to go back over all the changes that might have happened over the last week and see, like, who worked on what, what might have been the cause for the buy button to be gone or for the buy button to not work anymore, But if a developer pushes it and a couple of minutes later, like the system tells you, hey, there was some kind of problem here. We couldn't automatically click on the buy button. So you might want to take a look at that. That's very cheap to resolve.
1: That makes perfect sense. And I I wanted you to uh, dig a little deeper into, um, without getting uh, really into what source control is like, just the the high-level overview, what are you talking about when you talk about a repository and a branch sure. and things like that? Yep, sure.
2: So in, in software development, so source code management system um, have been around for quite a while. The, the basic thought is that at some point you need to share the stuff you're working on with the rest of your team. The problem is that how a lot of people have done it in the past, if you just log into your servers and basically overwrite the files there, um, you lose the history. So what you want to have is a tool the source code management system that takes care of versioning. So if you upload another version of your system, you're still able to go back and take a look at the old versions. So that's one of the the, the challenges or the features that they support. And the other one is providing a workflow or helping you with a workflow of how to easily like introduce new changes into the system without stepping on each other, other's feet all the time. So that's what branches is really good for. So for example, in a repository, you typically, like in, in Git, that's probably one of the largest ones or the largest one or most interesting one at this one. Uh, you have a master branch. So a branch is just, basically you could see it as a separate folder. So the whole repository is like a large folder and there are subfolders. So the master branch is one subfolder that has a last version of your code. And then whenever a developer wants to work on another feature, they can just open up another branch, so another folder. They copy basically the master branch into that other folder, so the, the last version on the master branch, work on on their own branch, on their own specific uh, changes. And then once they're ready to push that back into the master, get that back into the like master that everybody else works on as well, You just you can review it, make sure like nothing clashes. There aren't isn't there aren't any conflicts in the files where different developers have stepped onto each other's files or have changed the same lines to make sure everything works and everything is validated. And you just you merge it back in. So the merge is the term for that when you like take the changes done in one branch and merge them into like another branch there. And there's like there's different workflows of people working all in feature branches, all of them working on master. So that's there's a lot of different workflows of how people use that. But basically, it's a tool to yeah make sure that all of the history is provided and we can go back at any point and that we don't step onto each other's feet all the time or overwrite changes that somebody else did that might be important. And if we overwrite them, at least we know and we can see that we've overwritten them without like it just getting dropped.
1: Okay, great. And so just to wrap my head around this, so you're saying that continuous integration is the process or the point at which you are you know, seamlessly and with confidence integrating these latest changes into the code that your users are now seeing? Yes, basically. Okay, great. And we talked about these different kinds of testing. Can you mm-hmm. dive into some of those a little bit? Sure, sure.
2: Generally, just to, to take one step back in testing in general, um, how we think, or what What our approach to testing is at CodeChip, and that's kind of important to get started, is we really, we try to, so we see testing not just as a developer tool, but it's it's something that really helps us with the business as well and our whole workflow. So you test software to be able to, in three months or six months, still be very fast with a growing code base. The real point that I see with testing is that maybe in the beginning, it's In investment, like you have to invest more time into the tests than if you wouldn't do them, which is in the beginning might seem like a waste because your code base is small, your product is small. It's really easy to understand and it's really easy to manually test. But as much as your code base keeps growing, it's really harder to keep track of all the problems that a specific change might have introduced. So it's really important to have an automated workflow that can make sure that once you change anything, it automatically checks if everything is is still working fine and and that's where testing comes in and that's where we feel that testing is really a tool to step into like the shoes of your users, of your customers and try to test your system in a way that they would as well. So what we do a lot is very high functional testing or like there's a lot lot of different terms for that. But basically like we start up a browser, click automatically through the browser to make sure that features like login, like a buy button, like the most important workflows that you and your team need to support, that they need to work. Like if some small feature somewhere in the corner doesn't work and breaks, maybe that's not as dramatic. But if some of your main workflows, your main features break, that's a big deal. So you want them, at least them, you also want the like smaller corner features to be tested as well, of course. But like the big and important workflows need to be tested in a way that you can validate that they really work for the user. So starting at a very high level and like testing from top to bottom, basically, is something that we really encourage people to do and and get started there and then like once you have those high level workflows tested and on a very like functional or acceptance test level so like there's a tests that make sure and do acceptance testing of your system so you know that all the features work that all the high level stuff works and the users can actually use your still use your product uh and then you might want to go down to a deeper level for some edge cases, for example. You might not want to test all your edge cases in your system on a very high level because that's slow. So like you want to have at least the successful paths tested on a very high level and then go deeper and deeper into the stack and do like controller tests or unit tests and for the different levels of software that you need and test them in a way that is a lot faster and we'll just cover the edge cases. But in our opinion, it's really like starting very high and making sure and there's tons of tools out there to do that, and making sure on a very high level that the most important stuff works is critical, and then going downstairs from there.
1: And so the the functional testing, that is like a bit of code that you're writing to automate what a user might do in real life, right?
2: Absolutely. So it's, it's basically you start up your your server, um, you start up a browser, and then you automatically direct your browser to like hit that server, and then just click around automatically. So there's... A lot of different tools like Selenium, PhantomJS and like tons of others um, that can help with that. And yeah, but it's basically like start up your infrastructure, start up a browser and hit your infrastructure with that browser. Hit the latest change in your, your server with that browser. Just click around like a user would.
0: When you're saying click around, does this mean that once you push your code, then this is happening or are you doing yeah. this yourself?
2: No, that's totally automated. So for example, take an example like CodeShip itself. When we push into any branch of our repository, so if you push any updates anywhere in our um of our source code, then we start off by running unit tests or very low level, like very fast tests to make sure like if anything there breaks, like um we know immediately because that's they are very fast. They take about a, a, like two minutes, one and a half to two minutes. So that's a very fast first gatekeeper to tell us like if something goes wrong but if they pass what then happens is um, we start our functional test suite which in the beginning it just boots up our server in the background and then boots up a browser Uh, so firefox in our case but there's tons of tools out there and then just the browser hits the server and like the tests we've written our functional tests just direct the browser to do exactly like interact with the browser in a way that a user would and just click on different links. And the test really say, click on login, fill in email with this or that fill in password with this other thing, and then go in and click this button and then click this link and then fill in that thing. So it's very, as a user would interact with the system, it's just automated, but a user would do exactly the same thing in a real browser it's just that we fill or click these things automatically.
0: Okay, and it does sound like this automated testing, building these tests, could be a significant amount of of work. Could you dig into how this sorts of these sorts of testing will um, save you time, save yes, a team time?
2: Definitely, it's a longer term investment. It's an investment in being able to innovate quickly in the future as well. I think that, and we've seen that as we're working with so many teams who've either are just outing, starting out with a project and have done testing from the beginning, and this is what I, what we've done in, in CodeShip, but also from past experience in other companies or teams that we've worked with that have built their product or their first iterations of their product without testing, it's in the beginning, you're faster if you don't write any tests because it's a really slow, small code base. You're really just working on that small thing, but then you very quickly hit a point where you don't see... You don't have an overview over your whole application with every change anymore. So if you do a change, you don't fully understand all of the implications that has on your whole product anymore. And then that becomes a big problem if you don't have any tests, because you either you break your, your code all the time, so you break your application all the time, or the second option is then that you just manually click through all of your application. And we've seen that with teams who just, who whenever they want to release something, and that wasn't big teams, that were small teams. They just take a week and just have Excel sheets and just click through, like follow every line in that Excel sheet to just click around their website and make sure like their test works. So they had kind of an automated approach, just it wasn't a computer driving it, but it was some person driving it in the end. But that's just really expensive, really slow. And so while in the beginning, it seems like it costs more than it gives you in the beginning, over the longer term, it's definitely much, much easier to still keep innovating faster. And so we at CodeChip, what we do when we run tests, and we've been around for a while, we have quite a big code base as well as tests, quite a lot of tests. And when we want to push any kind of change into our application, we just run our tests. And if all the tests pass, we just push it. We just deploy it out there and just push it into production because we feel that the tests are so comprehensive that we can just do that. We have the trust in the whole process and the whole uh, infrastructure. And we can do that a couple of times a day. And we're not that, like we're a team of 10 people in total. We're not a like Google or Facebook sized team that can invest, that has money coming out everywhere and just can invest so much money. It's something that we've built up from the beginning. And it's one of, at the core of how we think that we can innovate in the future and how we think that we can, be faster over the long term and provide high quality over the long term. So innovate very quickly, push out new features very quickly. But on the other hand, don't break stuff all the time for our customers. So that's really, it's it's really a longer term thing and not doing it will definitely hurt you and it'll hurt you pretty quickly.
1: It's interesting that you talk about the longer term but you dug into the shorter term a little bit and you know, I just wanted to comment on my experience when previously I was doing testing without continuous integration because I had no idea what it was, just wasn't even aware that it was uh, a process that small teams could use and I was manually doing this as I was building and it takes a really long time to manually do that after every single code change. So yes. even in the process of me developing it for the first, you know, four days or something like that, I'm still continuously clicking around myself, making sure the feature works, having to start over from scratch at, you know, step one in some seven step process through user onboarding or something. And it, it is very time intensive, even in those early days.
2: Yes. And and it's not just, it's not just the time you spend, but really like the gut feeling that, you know, you, you can trust your application of. like you, you can't like you don't feel like you can push it all the time. You don't feel that you can move very fast because you don't like, if I move a little faster now, will I break something? And once you like get that feeling of fear that you, you, you can't really do it. You, you don't really want to move too fast. You like, you fear the next step. Then like innovation is already out of the window. Like you're not like you're, you're maintaining the status quo, maybe a little bit pushing outwards, but like the large steps really really taking huge strides forward that's just over at this point because you don't have the trust that in like the whole workflow and like in the application itself and how you work that you really can do it it's just the fear grows and grows and grows and when fear grows in infrastructure and in workflow like the slower you can innovate and that's why we see like in large enterprise teams we see months and months of release cycles not necessarily because their customer expected to be months and months, but because like there's so much fear and complexity involved because nobody really thought that through from the beginning that you just have to move slow. You can move fast because there's so much process now around it to make sure to, to deal with that fear instead of like tackling that fear from the beginning and like doing it in a way that you push out so often you do it in a way that reduces that fear because you know you trust like in the process, in your tests, in the way you build your software. And that's just, you're a lot happier with that. And it's just a lot easier to to move quickly, especially in, in the long term.
1: So you talked a little bit about how you test. You talked about these functional tests and then diving down into unit tests for the edge cases. When do you know that you're testing enough at a certain level? And when do you know to move down to that next level?
2: Yeah, that's really tricky. I think there's a lot of gut feeling involved and a lot of experience in the specific application as well. I think it's hard to say specifically when to go down. I think that um when you have the feeling that you've tested it, so basically, I mean, the the typical judgment you can do is like the higher level the test is, typically the slower it is because you it involves a lot more, like it involves the browser, it involves your server running, it's a lot more complex and a lot slower. So once you have the feeling that, You've tested a specific feature on a high level enough to really believe that it's tested well enough that it won't break for the user on a very high level in like the successful cases, like, or in the successful cases and the, in a not successful case, but that is still very common. So for example, if you create, I don't know, a new item in the shop, yeah. And the item ID has to follow some naming convention. You might want to test on a very high level that if you put in something that doesn't follow that naming convention, that the error message is shown properly. That's something that you might want to test very high level, but to test all kinds of different naming conventions or all the specifics of how that naming convention works, you might not want to test it on a very high level because that's very, that's slow. You just like want to do the whatever a user expects to happen and whatever happens for a user, you want to make sure that you have that on a high level. And there's typically only a few paths, like it's a successful path where, okay, we're going to the next page or something is now created and like it shows up somewhere on the page and there is an error message. Make sure we show some kind of error message, but let's not try to test on a very high level every error message that can potentially happen. So just like manage expectations of what users like, In which state can a user go into? And let's make sure that we like cover the like most important states that a user can touch and on a very high level. So like we know that they're always going to see something nice, something helpful, something, um, that helps them. But for like the specifics of which error case is shown and which message is shown and like that can be handled on a lower level.
1: Okay. So that makes sense. So, I mean, just, uh, to throw out another example. So I'm wrapping my head around it. You've got, mm-hmm. um, let's say the, the sign up page for Twitter and you're testing that the, the username, uh, field renders some sort of error if you happen to use more than the number of characters allowed. So let's say it's 15 characters that you can use and there you've used a hundred. You should test that it shows some sort of error that at least yeah. you get the the 15 character error message but then if you also disallow spaces or symbols or you know grammatical punctuation or something like that you shouldn't test that that error message is rendering on the UI you should just test that somewhere else uh, a little bit lower and a little bit uh, faster
2: absolutely that's perfect example thanks i'm going to steal that example
1: okay sure <laughs>
2: <laughs> no that's that's perfect example that's exactly like make sure that Yeah, the expectations of a user are met and a user, like, is all, like, does always see something helpful. But what exactly that might be can be tested in a lot, much lower and, and, and faster. Okay.
0: So to test these hundreds of little edge cases, you don't want to, you know, start up an entire browser and click through hundreds of times. You're just running a little bit of code at the lower level to test it.
2: Exactly. Exactly, and, mm-hmm. and that's something that teams need to be prepared to get wrong from time to time. So, like sometimes you write a test that is too low level, and then you might want to move it higher level because like it should really belong there, or the other way around. So, it's really not an exact science. It's it's there's a lot of gut feeling involved, and a lot of like what exactly do we need in our application to be tested in which way? So, I think that teams should be prepared that it's like you want to like you need to invest even in existing tests or existing test suite, you need to invest time and keep it up to date in some point or at least like think about how to evolve that. So that's something that the test suite, like it's not that you write the test suite once and then you never touch those. You touch them rarely or much rarer than your application code, but you still touch it from time to time and you still need to make sure that your test suite is valuable still because otherwise you can easily get to a point where, People feel that your test suite isn't helpful anymore, so then nobody really likes to do any more tests, and then like that whole the whole nice time you invested in the path uh, gets lost already again because nobody really wants to use it anymore. And then like it's not really done in the continuous integration kind of way anymore because nobody really cares. And then so that whole workflow gets lost again. So really making sure that your tests work fine, do not break uh, randomly, and there's time invested into that in the longer term is really important as well.
1: And so to go back just a minute to talking about these low level little edge case tests. Um that's typically what we refer to as unit testing, is that correct? Yeah. And so unit testing really is referring to these tiny units of code. Um so you know we're testing like in the the username example, there'd be a unit test for 15 characters, there'd be a unit test for no less than 3 characters. Is that accurate? Yeah.
2: Absolutely. You'd probably have some kind of like validation class module subsystem or whatever. And you just call that subsystem with the wrong values and make sure it throws the right error messages, which, can, which is super fast because you only really test that unit of code and stop or like, or mock away. How best you define that in a not programming term? Like you, you only test that specific part of code and everything else that might be touched. You just hide that basically, or you just put in some, something fast that, that mocks that kind of other system, but you only really make sure to test that one part of code in isolation.
1: Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Isolating it. Great.
2: Like testing from top to bottom and like really getting started early on the testing. I think that's something that is really important there as well is people misunderstand or misjudge how much time they need to invest in the beginning into their test infrastructure. I think that, or into their tests specifically, I think that, and again, we've seen that with a lot of teams that just getting started, setting up the workflow and just making sure like use a continuous integration system, whatever that might be, it might be co-chip, of course hopefully.
0: Um, yes.
2: <laughs> but, but like whatever, set, the, set up the workflow. And I think that's, that's not just here, but I think that's a general like in development or a, I found that generally in, in whatever I've worked on, like setting up the workflow and putting in one test is something that is incredibly valuable because you prove with like very few hours that you need to invest and in like typically setting up a CI system today and writing one test that, for example, checks that you can log in into your server That's something that can be done in a few hours max. But that's something that already there provides a lot of benefit. And it shows, like the rest of the team, it shows how that whole workflow could potentially work in the future. It's like you see that benefit of the workflow pretty quickly, but you don't need to invest a lot of time. I think that a lot of teams think about or they don't want to start with testing because they think they have to start very low level invest days or weeks to build a very low level test suite that covers everything and build on top of that low level test suite. And I think that stops them from really investing the time. I think it's totally the other way around. I think that you should start on a very high level. And and I've, I've written a, a blog post about that and how to like a little kind of a game, how to start in that, how to understand like what's the most important workflows that you need or just, Everybody in the team basically like writes their own list of most important workflows in a, a given format. And then you come together as a team, put this list together, build like the list of 15 or 20 most important workflows in your system that everybody in the team agrees on. And then start like write a test for the first workflow and write a test for the second and the third and write a test for the first five workflows and then just stop for a bit and then just put that into production or put that into like your continuous workflow And then just work with it. And then with every new change, you'll immediately start seeing the benefit of not breaking your most important workflows. You start seeing how easy that is. And and also teams, like when you start building your test infrastructure and your tests, the tools that you're starting with and the tools that you use in the beginning for your tests don't have to be the tools that you use in a year. Don't waste your time like looking into every single test tool out there just pick the one that you can get started today and write your first test today. And that can be like phantom Chess is super easy. yeah. And we've also written a blog post about that, how to get started with that, where it's just, it's a little bit of JavaScript, start your servers in the background, just hit your site through the browser there with a little bit of JavaScript. You'll probably be done with like your first tests in one hour, maybe two hour max, probably less even. And you already see like why it works really well and you see and understand the workflow better. And then like the excuse in the team why you don't write any tests is really not there anymore because you you already have the whole workflow set up. You have first couple of tests, you see the benefit of it and then teams start getting addicted to it. And we've had teams who, who start exactly like that, like wrote one test, put that into the workflow and iterated on that and they saw the benefit and now they have thousands of tests, are super happy with it and can move really quickly. So it's not... You don't have to spend weeks upon weeks in the beginning just to get your tests in place. Just spend two hours, three hours to just get started, put the workflow in place, put the first tool in place, just write it in whatever is quickest. And just so everybody in the team understands the benefit.
1: Great. And in fact, to comment on what you said before I dig in a little more, I personally, when I started out doing software development with my, my first startup, there weren't tools like this around. There weren't uh, yep. platforms like Codeship. And I spent maybe a week and a half trying to get at the, what at the time was called uh, Hudson CI, now Jenkins, yep. working. And I was a PHP developer. I had no idea about Java. And I'm trying to debug all these Java error messages. And it was a huge pain. So there's a lot of lingering doubt out there amongst developers that you might hear saying that, Oh well, continuous integration is just a, a huge pain, and it's not worth the effort. But tools like CodeShip, you're up and running in you know a few minutes at the fastest. Uh It's amazing. So thank you for building tools like this. Wow. Happy to. Um, yeah, I
2: think it's a general. I mean, it's definitely true in testing, but I think it's a general thing in like all of development today. That like with tools like Heroku and GitHub. Like there is really no point in hosting, especially not in the beginning, your own stuff in a lot of these cases, because there's tools that just do it very well. They're really cheap, especially in the beginning. Like Heroku has the, or a lot of people think it's very expensive, but in the beginning, it's not as expensive because you don't need a lot of like resources anyway, because you're still small and there's not a lot of traffic. So you can figure out how to get something less expensive or optimize on Heroku or somewhere else uh, in the long term. And I think that's the only way to really go about it today because there's so many teams pushing in so many different products that you really don't have any time to waste on deciding which infrastructure you should build on your own. I think those times have passed. I think that's something that most teams just can't allow themselves to do anymore. It's really, you need to be so much faster than that. So somebody else doing the job and just providing you with a service that you can plug into and like drop a little bit of money in is just so much better than just building everything on your own and meanwhile forgetting to build your product and just competition, just running circles around you with your product. I think that's just, it's not the right way to go in my opinion, but I'm totally biased, obviously. Well,
1: I mean, we're biased too. Uh, We make the same argument to our clients all the time. Actually, in fact, we typically, the advice that we're giving is that we are way too expensive to be spending time yes. building a platform for you. Like, unless your product is a platform, there's no reason for you to be building that yourself. You should be building your product.
2: Absolutely. I couldn't agree. And I think that, like, it's much easier. It seems much easier, like, when you're working with, like, you guys, like, with, it's, if, because you actually, you have, like, every hour that you have actually has a price coming with it. So it's much easier to argue. I think that a lot of teams internally don't really count the hours or like measure the hours that it takes to build the infrastructure that is not necessary and that they actually they pay for those hours because either they're paying their employees for that or if they're founders, they probably won't pay themselves for it, but they lose the time in building their product. So it's really it doesn't pay off. In my opinion, just it doesn't pay off to do stuff that other people just do a lot better and you can just pay them for it a fraction of what it would cost to build it yourself in, in time.
1: Right. I, I mean, I really suggest that teams that have salaried developers really start considering them in terms of what their hourly is and break that cost down because it's, it is very expensive to be spending time on things like that. But I, I wanted to dig into, um, you talked about this workflow that you've got and, you know, these tests that you write are not, there to be unchanged. You don't write this test suite and then leave it there for eternity. The test is going to evolve to meet your application. Your application is going to evolve to meet what your customers are demanding. So how should you be responding to testing? Should you be writing tests before you write code? Should you be reacting to changes that you make in your code and then trying to test them? What's your advice for uh, how to test?
2: Yeah, I think so the whole test-driven or not test-driven development um, kind of thing is interesting topic and there's a lot of heated or interesting di- discussion about that. Generally, I think there's two distinct or different stages where in one of them test-driven development makes sense and in one doesn't. So basically when you build a new feature or a new subsystem or something that you do not know exactly how that thing is going to work, how that thing is going to look or how your users are going to interact with it, there isn't really a lot of point in writing tests at this point because like you're going to change your tests dramatically all the time for that i think that some kind of exploratory development where you just you implement the feature and you just go ahead and and work on it up to the point where you have the feeling like i understand this fully i understand the implications from a technological point of view i understand how my users are going to interact with that system or how the ui for my users should look and not in terms of like how it's going to look like When printed up through CSS, but really like, what's the link going to be? How is my user going to interact? Is there some interactive features that my user, uh, that the users are going to have to use? Once you understand that and once you understand clearly like how this is going to work like that. So I can do that and put that into a test now. Then you should like step away, write the test and then go ahead and implement it. I think that's, and that's definitely something that people need to try and need to learn and need to see on, on that. But I think that. During that first exploratory phase, it's really hard to determine what exactly the test should be. But once you're at a point where you're pretty sure of where exactly it's going and how exactly that system is going to look and be designed, then it's the right time to write the tests and really write it. I mean, the pe- tests are basically automated specification. It's really like it specifies how the system should Either the user should interact with the system or the system should work given specific input parameters. And once you know exactly like the input parameters and the results, there is really no reason not to write the test because like you can either write it right now and it helps you with your development. Because also like the nice thing in tests is if you're really, really sure, this is how my system is going to look and work. And then you write a test for it and actually have code interacting with the system or have code clicking around the website. You might see something that really doesn't work in your design or how you think, thought about the system. So you might want to write it. And so that's something that is really helpful. I think that, yeah, it's just experience goes a long way with that. But I think that yeah, putting yourself in a position where you're able to just code a bit. But once you understand, like, this is how it's going to look, to really have the ability to step back and say, okay, now I understand it. Now I'll write a test. So that's like with new features or like new stuff. And generally, if you just change existing stuff a little bit and expect it to behave slightly different, where you typically understand all of the implications, all of the input parameters, all of the workflow, then you should, should just write a, a test beforehand, in my opinion, just if you know exactly what the test is going to look like and how you have to adapt or like add another test to your existing code base. There is really no reason not to write it beforehand and just let it run, see if it doesn't work, then implement the feature and then just have a green build and just it works.
1: I really like the way that you described it as automated specifications, because that's typically how we try and reduce the cost of testing is we go through a lot of specifications beforehand, you know, writing user stories and making, you know, even like really rough prototypes or something like that doing some code spikes, sort of what you talked about with writing some basic code to be able to get that critical path working. And then at that point, we know enough about how it works to be able to write those specifications in that automated fashion. So I like the way that you discussed that. Absolutely.
2: I think that's, yep, totally your way sounds exactly like how we do it as well.
0: Where do you draw the line with what you should test and should not test? Is there some kind of a balance that you have to strike? Are there things that you should not be testing?
2: in terms of features, like in the end, what it's all about is you want to make sure that any change you do doesn't negatively impact your users and customers. So if you decide on not testing something, then you have to be really sure that if that thing breaks, your users are not impacted at all. So in that sense, I think there is not really, or there are very few things I can think of that you really shouldn't test then in the system or at least like you should be able to live with it being broken for a bit until you fix it i think that if a feature or a specific function in your in your product has to work and you cannot live with it failing in production then you just need to write a test there is just no way around that stuff like maybe you want to i don't know maybe your how, to reset your password maybe you don't really care about that being tested because that's what the framework like takes care of, so you don't really care, and you just let the framework take care of that, but you don't really test it on your end. That might be an option. But still, then the question is, can you live with it being broken? Can you live with having that fail on a user? That's a the decision that I think that teams need to do somehow on their own with, with each feature. Generally, I think that the problem with leaving, with not testing specific features, is really that you start getting that fear back in uh, into the whole development cycle and into the team, the, the fear of does it work or is this change going to impact something that I don't really know or understand? Or are there implications that I don't really know and understand? And again, once you get that fear back in and like that nice gut feeling of I totally trust my tests. I totally trust that whatever I changed didn't totally break like the rest of my application. I think there, you should never make a compromise on that on, on, on having like that good gut feeling of like, this is actually going to work and this is not going to kill anything for my customers. I think that's that. what you should strive for. If some parts you don't care, because whatever, if that breaks, it's not that important or we really don't care, then that's fine. But there's very few things, I think, that can work there. And and again, like tests don't need to be, you don't need to write thousands of tests for every part of the application. Like typically, like a very high level test that shows the workflow works fine, or like a specific like login works fine. You don't have to test the login feature in very intricate detail, because if you can log in on a very high level, chances are pretty high that everything's going to work on a low level as well. And that comes down to every feature. If it works like the successful cases work on a very high level, there's typically not that much need to test it on a very, very low level as well, because it just, it works. It works on the high level. So I think that's It's really hard to determine. I think that's really on on every team, like what can they live with, with breaking and basically what is okay for them to push on their customers as testers. So when when is it okay to to get the feedback from customers when something goes wrong and where isn't it okay? And like, we're all limited with time. So you might not want to test some stuff or you might not want to put that in place. But in the end, like when that thing breaks, eventually, like you're going to have to invest the time anyway. Um, you're going to have to make sure it works then and fix it then. So why not invest a little bit of that same time right now, write a simple test for it, and just not have to deal with this anymore in the future.
0: Okay. Are there any guidelines or techniques that you guys use at Codeship for determining that a feature is well-tested enough to be deployed into production?
2: Not, um, I mean, we do code reviews for everything. So we have, so we, there's Mm. a feature branch for every new feature and at least one other developer in the team looks over the, the code and just checks it out and sees like, do the tests here make sense? Or is there something that is obviously not covered and doesn't work? Or like, is there something that isn't tested uh, correctly? And I mean, there are certainly cases where we push stuff into production and just, it doesn't work. And there, there are tests in place but the test didn't test it in like exactly like it turned out in production, how users would use it. So then we need to write another test and make sure like to fix that quickly. Um So that definitely, that still happens. Like just investing a lot of time in your testing doesn't mean that you'll not break something, especially new features. Like you might, they might go out and not work as expected. Just it lowers the chances of it happening again and again and again. But we don't have, any specific guidelines on that? I think that's, there's a lot of like how we feedback our pull request, how we tell people about that, how much we even like in interviews before we get new developers in or when we get new developers in, how much we talk about testing and how important that is to us and how much we want them to take the time to properly test the application. And like, if you get good developers in and if you get good people in and give them the time and space to properly test their stuff, Then, and and then feedback it correctly and say, okay, this shouldn't probably be on that high level, but you can make it faster like that. Then that works really well. And it builds that in-house knowledge throughout all of the team of how we approach testing. But it's really hard to determine like a specific guideline, or at least not at this point, we haven't really done that.
1: Okay, great. And I have this question because, you know, it comes up with us time and time again with clients where... You know, we've done all this work, put all this work into testing, and yet bugs still find their way into applications. So is continuous integration going to mean a bug proof application?
2: Sadly no. (laughs) I'd love that to be to be true, but no, that's it just dramatically lowers the chances of there being or of bugs creeping into features that have worked in the past. So it's really like you still like if you're working on a new feature and you implement the feature and you implement the test. But there is a misunderstanding of how maybe a third party feature works, of how people interact with it. It's totally easy to introduce a new bug with new features, but then you fix it. But the advantage that you have is that you don't have to, you'll probably haven't introduced a bug into an old feature because you have a test that still works, that the old feature still works as expected. So you won't break as many old things. You can still totally break new things because you might, there might be a misunderstanding of how they work. But it's much harder to break old things. And the important part then as well is if you break something, you're set up in a way that you can very quickly ship a fix for it because you just run all the tests again. You know, they work like all the old stuff worked. And like, because I've, and I've seen that oftentimes in in companies have worked in as well in the past where like you ship something, it breaks part of the application. You ship a fix. The fix is much worse and breaks all other parts of the application. And that's something, or even like you can ship something or you can ship a fix to that feature now or it needs a couple of days because you have to test it again. Like you have to test everything again before you can ship quickly. And that's an impossible situation to be in where it gets you progressively slower and slower uh, or you just kill stuff all the time. So I think that having that test suite, just even if you uh, ship something that is broken, if you have a bug in there, you can at least fix it quickly because you have the trust that, like your fix is not killing everything else.
1: Okay, great. And um, We've talked a lot about continuous integration, but you mentioned at the beginning of the show, and of course we talked about what Codeship is. Codeship is a platform for both continuous integration and continuous deployment. What is continuous deployment? How yep. does it differ from continuous integration?
2: Sure. Basically, so continuous integration, continuous deployment are like the, the larger workflow on top of those would be continuous delivery. There's a lot of terms flowing around now. But um, so basically the thought is or like what people have to do today is yeah, innovate quickly, get push new features out into production or get them into production as quickly as possible. Get feedback from their customers and then iterate very quickly and get the next thing out into production in the hands of their customers as fast as possible to get more feedback and then like to fuel that cycle of like we push new stuff, get feedback very quickly, either like by asking users or measuring how they interact with the system, letting that data flow back into the development and shipping the next stuff. Because if you have that cycle, that very quick iteration cycle, you can just build something that is very much aligned with what your customers need. So the problem there is basically what you need to do is you need to be able to ship all the time, Several times a day automatically, because if there's any kind of manual interaction, if you deploy 10, 15, hundreds of times a day, it, it's impossible to do manually because you can't do all of the checks, the automated tests manually. You can't do even, even deployment has to happen automatically because just starting your deployment script and watching deployment happen a couple of times per day, that's basically a full time job at this point. So if we like, if we deploy 10, 15 times a day, and we would have to watch it all day, that's somebody sitting in front of deployment all the time. So that just doesn't work and that doesn't scale. So what you want to have is a workflow in place that is able to repeatedly ship stuff all the time and then also to give you feedback very quickly on any problems that might arise in your development or that gives your development team the power to review anything quickly to be able to move even faster. So... For example, continuous deployment basically means that whenever your tests are run, for example, the master branch, it is deployed into production, or it might only be deployed into production on your master branch, but you have a specific production branch. And whenever you merge from your master branch into your production branch, you run the tests again and then only deploy it to production. But the only thing that you have to think about is really which code is in which branch in my repository. Everything after that, the testing, the deployment is all automated, all the notification, everything you have to think about if something goes wrong, that's all automated. So as a developer, I just, I work on my stuff. I push that into my branch. It gets merged by one of my colleagues into master at some point. It gets deployed to staging or to production completely automatically. And while all of that happens, I can keep working on the next thing so I'm able to ship even something else today or or a third thing today. So I can really always focus on building the product and pushing the product and the company forward. And everything that can be automated is just automated. And in a way that I can reliably do it X number of times per day, because if I do it 10 times a day, the 11th time will probably not kill, like will work as well. Like the whole deployment workflow, if you do it often enough, It'll just work again and again and again, and it won't break because if you're doing it so often that any problems that come up regularly, you need to fix them anyway. So that's, that's basically continuous deployment is really like extending the quick iteration from just getting quick feedback on your, the changes in your code to getting quick feedback on the whole application from your customers very
1: quickly to be able to iterate on that and to, to take a step back for a moment, can we get a couple definitions on some of those terms that we're using? So I mean, we talked about continuous deployment, but really, what is deployment? Um, what does that that term mean? and you know what are these uh, staging and production yep, servers sure. that you're talking about so basically
2: deployment is is just taking the change or a specific version of your code and putting them on some kind of server, making them available to your either customers, if they are on a production server. Um, so production is the one that, that is the term that is typically used for, um, when your customers see that or a staging server that is just an internal server, an internal service where you push into that. So the rest of the team can take a look, which is also really important because in a way, when you, when you want to release all the time uh, and you want to release quickly, um You want to have a way to review all of your like review changes or have somebody else on the team who might do like the product person or the designer to just take a look at like when you build a new feature, you want somebody else to be able to t- take a look quickly, determine if that works or not, and give you feedback on that. If that guy has to come over to your desk every time um you do some changes, that's pretty bad because that takes a long time. If that just, whenever you do a change, it gets automatically deployed into a staging environment. So, Something internal that only you guys see with test data, but that somebody else can review. That's a lot faster feedback cycle for you as a developer than just having to communicate with everybody else on the team all the time and getting updates from them. What's deployed where and what's happening where. So deployment is simply the process of making like a specific version of a code available to a specific group of people, be it like staging internally or being on a production server for your customers. And yeah, staging is just like something internal. You can take a look.
0: Do you have a recommended development workflow for small startups? And if so, could you walk us through the start to finish of that at a high level? Sure.
2: So what we use internally is something that, so it's called GitHub Flow. Um, It's basically, it came out of GitHub. Um, So there's like, I can, I'll send you like all of the, the links or blog posts I talked about later on. So you can put them in the, In the notes afterwards as well. But GitHub Flow, basically what GitHub Flow is, is so you have that master branch. So the master branch is always deployed directly into production or, or deployable into production. And then from that master branch, for every new feature we do, we branch away and create a feature branch. So where one or several developers work on that feature branch that is totally separate from the master. And so once that a specific feature or a specific change is fully implemented, um, we open on GitHub a pull request. So a pull request basically means I, as a developer, want that change in my feature branch to be merged into the master branch. And I want it to be merged and deployed. And I want somebody else on the team to take a look. So I take that change, open the pull request, and then I tell, let somebody else on the team know, Hey, please review that. Tell me if everything works fine or if there's anything I need to change before it can go into, into release. So. Then there's, there might be a couple of iterations on that feature branch, on that pull request until like both sides are happy with that. Then it gets merged into master, the tests are run again, and then it gets deployed out into production. Something that we're working on right now is that for every feature branch or for specific ones where, where we trigger it, that that gets deployed automatically into their own like QA applications. So every feature app is their own application on Heroku. It runs completely separately from all the others. And so we can review every feature in isolation and see, like, how is the change looking? Does it work fine? Are there any problems with it? Without And, like, all that happens automatically. So, like, product um, and everybody in the team can just go to that URL, review the feature anytime without anybody having to do anything. It just happens automatically. But that's basically the workflow we have, which has worked very well for us and, and, and is very much tuned to the continuous deployment, continuous delivery kind of workflow where you push all the time because it's just, it's very quick. Like you open a new branch, code something there, review it, merge it back in, it goes out and you work on the next thing. There's not a lot of friction involved. Yeah. So that's something that we, we use a lot. What some people do as well is that the master branch is not deployed to production directly, but just in a staging environment. So you have your master branch, you branch away into feature branches for like your feature development, merge it back into master and master is is then deployed to staging. You can review staging all the time and whenever you want to deploy into production, you merge master into a production branch and then it goes out into production. That's typically something where when teams get started with that whole workflow and then continuous deployment, they might not want to deploy everything to production immediately, but have more control over it. So that's something that people typically do where like they want to get accustomed to it. So they, they want it's running somewhere. And we really believe that like code that isn't running somewhere is only technical debt because like you get all the negatives of the code. Like you have more code, more tests. It's more expensive to run more things to review, but it, it isn't running somewhere. So you don't know, does it work? Does it break something dramatically? What's the feedback of your customers for that feature? So it's really like getting it out as fast as possible and even just seeing it in a staging environment where you can take a look and get feedback on that is really important. So code should always be running somewhere, in our opinion, where specifically it depends on the workflow of, that, of the team.
1: All right, great. Thank you so much, Flo. This has been an amazing overview of this topic. So tell us, where can we keep up with both you and uh, Codeship online?
2: On Twitter, of course, there's uh, Flo Motlik is my Twitter handle. There's blog.codeship.io where we, we've, we've even had like a long workflow series where we go into much more detail on like how exactly is our workflow, how do we decide which feature we want to implement, like feature branches and how we deploy and like even our support workflow. There's a lot of stuff and a lot of different, like how we think about or build infrastructure, a lot about that. And yeah, that would be probably the the best avenues to keep up. So either my Twitter handle is Flomotlic and there's a blog that I haven't launched so far, my personal one, um, that I'm going to push out through the Twitter handle relatively soon. But yeah, and then blog.codeship.io. We can also read like testing from bot- top to bottom and a couple of other blog posts that help teams get started with how they should test and which tools they should use and how they can get started.
1: Great. Yes. I, I love your blog because I mean, if anybody needs their their team to have some quick starts on uh, how this workflow is. I mean, you've done pretty much every possible configuration of how to use X with Y and Z together. Uh, so it's really fantastic. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at talkingcode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, Go to TalkingCode.com ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.